Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Right, thank you very much indeed for that welcome. Yes, I am indeed a historian and um, I was absolutely delighted to get this invitation. And when I started to think about what I was going to talk about, um, I noticed that everybody else speaking at the event was going to be talking about kind of contemporary affairs. And I thought for a moment, well, maybe I should be trying to think about something more kind of contemporary elements of my research. I actually work on the Victorian period. And I thought, actually, it would be much more interesting if I just talk about what I do do. Um, the, um, seminar, uh, the symposium is all about where we come from. And I guess I, I, I suppose we can think about that. I'm doing a, a kind of a where we began. And, and actually, these stories, the things that I'm going to be talking about, have a much longer and deeper history than anything that I will be talking about today. But I think actually some of our most interesting conversations happen when we do talk to people outside our ordinary silos. So I just want to present some of my historical research and um, just encourage people really to think about how this might be relevant and how the prehistory of some of the things that we're grappling with today may be relevant to us now. So my work is historical. I work on the Victorian period. My work is about gender and pay. It's very much about pay and women's work. But it's actually really much more than that because pay is not necessarily the most useful way of thinking about women's lives if we go back to the Victorian period. So my work is much more broadly about the relationships between the sexes both within the home and also within the workplace. You could say that I'm interested in money. Who has money? I mean, if we go back to the Victorian people, people don't, period, people don't have bank accounts. They don't kind of have, uh, money is a physical object that you have in your hands. You get it regularly, you spend it. And I think my question is really, who has this money in their hands and, and where does it go there, this kind of object of money? Whose is it? It's very difficult historically, looking at my period, to say very much about pay gaps and very much about women's pay. There is some evidence, but we're in a very different society to the world that we live in today, where the government collects all of this data and has been doing so through much of the 20th century. This simply wasn't happening in the 19th century. The kind of record that we have for pay is a, is a factory owner there or a farmer there, or universities very good at keeping records of how much they were paying for their building work. So we get bits of evidence here and there. We tend to have very much less evidence for how much women were getting paid and how much women, work women were doing. Um, and we don't have very robust evidence for the work that men was doing as well either, actually. So past the problem as a historian, if you want to think about women and women's work and women's pay, is that we just don't really have very much records. But I think actually there are much more fundamental problems. And part of the reason we don't have the records is because paid work wasn't that important to many women. It wasn't the major thing that they were doing in order to keep themselves alive. If we go back to the 19th century, in fact, I would say if we go back before the 1970s, waged work is not the most significant way that women were um, uh, providing or maintaining themselves. Women tended to maintain themselves through their relationships with men, initially their father and subsequently their husband. We think about the early 20th century workforce, and particularly my period if we go back to the 19th century, the workforce looks really very, very different. So those people who are able to go to work and to get money into their hands is very different from what we think about the workforce looking like today. The Victorian period at the beginning of the 19th century, children as young as five and six can go out to work. Um, and that, um, we see all through the Victorian period, a raising of the ages at which children are allowed to work. But even at the end of the century, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds are out of the workforce 
workforce in large numbers. So we have a lot of children in the workforce, a lot of very, very young workers in the workforce, but what we don't have tend to have is their mothers. Mothers tend not to work. There's lots of exceptions, lots of instances in which they do. But generally, families have a male worker, some children work, some child workers, and a mother that's staying at home and not going out to do paid work. This becomes even more pronounced over the 19th century where we see the kind of the emergence of the idea of a breadwinner wage. So the breadwinner wage is one that's supposed to be large enough to sustain a man and his wife and all of his children. Now, in reality, a lot of men don't earn that much, and we're basically going to talk precisely about that. So in the messy reality of people's lives, it's an ideal. It's not something that was really happening. But that's the idea, that you have a very kind of gender-divided home with people having different roles, and women's role is not an earning money kind of a role. So this is not, of course, to suggest that they don't work. There's lots of scenarios in which they will work. Particularly, this is very much, I'm talking about married women, Unmarried women are much more likely to go out to work, so very often working is something that women will do during some part of their lifetime, just not something that they will do through the whole of their lifetime. So unmarried women tend to work. And even married women, if they don't have children or they have a very small family, they may well be at work. And there's lots of instances in which women are at work. But it's always a kind of a top-up to male wages. And that's partly why looking at gendered pay and pay gaps is not particularly useful if we go back to the Victorian period, because it just doesn't really capture the reality of women's lives. There are a number of reasons why, uh, there are a number of other things we can say about women's pay, and, and, and part of the reason that women are not going out to work in very large numbers is because the wages that they get paid is, are, are really low. So we don't have system systematic and really robust evidence for female pay and for female wages, but there's lots of scattered evidence out there. And all of the evidence that we see suggests that male wages were much higher than female wages. And part of the reason is because in every workforce, I mean, we have a very, tasks are always divided up according to gender. And we can see this particularly clearly during the Industrial Revolution when we have kind of the growth of the factories around Manchester and Lancashire. You suddenly see um, these new workplaces places growing up, and what you see very clearly, and it's just a microcosm of what's going on in the broader economy as well, is the sorting of roles. So these factories have numerous machines laid out on numerous uh, floors. There's about 20 different processes you have to go through in order to make some cotton cloth, and every stage and every machine is a male or a female um, uh, task, and the, the male tasks are always paid at a higher rate than the tasks that women do. It's very interesting. If you go and look at the um, uh, around um, various parts of Lancashire, they've got um, historic mills and working mills that you can still go and look at, and the guides will take you around, and they'll spend a long time saying, well, this is quite a skilled machine, and this is the one that the men worked, and, and this is kind of a less skilled process, this is one that the women were doing, and they were getting paid less because obviously it's less skilled. And you kind of point out to them that they're doing pretty much the same thing on both of the machines, and that one is not harder than the other. They've just shown you how this one works, they just show you how this one works, and it's just exactly the same thing that they're doing. And even then, they're still saying, oh, no, no, this is a skilled machine. And you're like, well, no, it's not skilled. I've just seen you do the two things. It's, it's the same, isn't it? You're just, it's just a different machine. And, and it's just so kind of embedded that some roles are skilled, um, and they are male, and they are well-paid, and some roles are unskilled, and they're female, and they're less paid. And there's a kind of justification about the skill level that's involved. But when you really look at what's going on in factories, it's very, you know, the machines are doing the work, and, and, and really it's, it's very, very hard to see why some would be described as skilled and why some wouldn't. But what you do have 
is this differential pay, and we have that in every area of the economy as well. So agriculture is another one that's quite well documented. Um, men will do certain tasks, women will do other tasks, and usually farmers will pay half the wage, half the day rate to women that they pay to men. And sometimes the men are doing uh, physically difficult tasks, but very often it's really, really very difficult to see why you would kind of think of one as male and one as female, but that's the way it always is, and you've got these differential levels of pay. So what that means is that families have very little incentive to send female members out to work because they're going to earn half or less of what a male can earn. So I think the other thing that we kind of really need to think about when we think about these low rates of pay is that in a pre-modern society where there's a lot of labour is required to keep your household running, it's not going to work if you have lots of women working outside the home. Pre-modern homes are very, very labour-intensive. Every element of the things that you do in order to keep warm, fed and clothed just take hours of labour on a daily basis. So very often you might need to fetch the water. You need to fetch the wood. You need to chop the wood before you can use it. You need to make fires and then you need to clean the fires before you can make them again the next day. You've got no refrigeration. So your food needs you need to go to the shops on a daily basis. There's no pre-cooked food or pre-prepared food, so you buy raw ingredients, you clean them, you cook them on a fire that you've made. It's very labour-intensive, and it takes hours of labour every single day. And the pre-modern home simply isn't going to function without somebody doing this work. We call it housework. It really is the work of the house. And I think housework has rather different connotations it, you know, it has acquired very different connotations for us and it's much more about kind of improving or beautifying or enhancing the home in some kind of way. But for a pre-modern society, it's not about enhancing or beautifying the home. It's just fundamental work that needs to be done. And you've got to have people in the house doing that work. Um, obviously, you've got large families as well. You haven't got much in the way of birth controls. You've got large families, a lot of childcare that needs to be done as well. You need people, and, and society decrees this is women's work, so you really need women inside the house. And so these are two sides of the same coin, the low pay and the requirement to have women inside the home. If you have high wages, women will go out and they will earn that money instead, and then you've not got anybody to work in the house. And I think we see this very clearly in the factory districts again, which is this, kind of, this new experiment. It's all kind of growing up at this period. Where there's high-wage work, women go out to do it. But what we also see in the factories is that they always earn less than the men, although they usually have much higher wages than they could earn if they're living out in Norfolk or Bath or some other place where they, they haven't got an industrial revolution happening. It's always higher, but there's still a differential, and that is enough to mean families choose to send men out to work and choose to keep women at home as well. So the... Low female pay, a gender pay gap, is really a necessary structure. It's a necessary support structure throughout the 18th and 19th centuries that I'm looking at. Okay? It's not just kind of an accident that happens. It's something that the society needs to be organised and framed in this kind of way, or things are just not going to work. So for women, we don't need... You know, the, our standard ways of thinking about the economy, the, our standard ways of thinking about... Um, how economies work and living standards and wages, these just don't work. They just don't apply for women because women don't tend to go out and earn the money themselves and have the money in their own hands. They get money through their relationships to, uh, initially fathers, but mostly through their adult life, through their husband instead. And they, in return for that wage, do the work of the house. 
bit alarming, but that's okay. So part of what I'm doing is trying to think about, or trying to encourage historians to think about um, standard um, economic thoughts that we have and that we use and that we work with in new kinds of ways. Economics always has this veer of neutrality. Economic historians want to go out and get the data and give us the information about the wages, and it's all very kind of um, objective. It's not kind of a subjective discipline in any kind of way. It's kind of the facts speak for themselves. And I'm really trying to get um, historians, or kind of trying to encourage a dialogue with historians, to think much more about the assumptions we have about how the economy worked in the past. And for me, that starting point has to be the family, has to be what goes on inside the family. And it's only really by kind of, un, uh, kind of opening the door to that kind of that black box, peering, up, peering inside at these kind of very messy relationships that are going on inside families, that we can really understand who's benefiting from economic growth and what's kind of going on in the economy. So, as I say, I'm a historian, and I've been working with um, a set of sources, um, some working-class autobiographies. So very often it's very difficult to know very much about how families operate and how money moves around society, as if we've got much, much in the way of records. But we do have quite a lot of working-class autobiographies. So autobiographies, they're simply stories that people write later in life describing... Um, you know, the story, just telling the story of their life. And it always features, or nearly always features, something about childhood. So what I'm trying to do, really, is get all of that information that they're providing about their childhood, about their mothers and their fathers, and about who's providing and where the money's coming from and where is it going. I'm really trying to kind of unpack this story using these sources. Obviously, we, we face very different kinds of challenges as historians. So if one was to think about these questions today, you would want to kind of maybe divide, design a survey and you'd want to make sure that your records are really representative and that you get different people in different regions representing different kinds of experiences. We can't do that as historians. We've got to work with what's there, just, just work with what's there. But what we can do is look at the sources that we have and ask, do they match what we think society would have looked like in this period? Are they, do they look about right? Does it look like a good representative kind of cross-section of our society? Um, and of course, these, even these kinds of questions are very different, difficult, because how do we really know what Victorian society was like? Because we don't have all that data that's being collected today that tells us this kind of thing. But there are various things that we can do. So we can use the census, for example, to think about um, where people are living. Do people come from the countryside? Do they come from urban areas? And if we look at the autobiographies, they balance quite well with what we would have expected Victorian society to look like. So the census suggests that about... Let me just get my numbers correct. Yes, in the period um, 1825 down to 1870, the census suggests that about 50% of people in Britain are living in towns bigger than 5,000. Small, small definition of a town, but that's about the size um, that works for our period. And our, our autobiographies are roughly similar. Again, we have about half... Um, coming from urban areas for the earlier period. And if, if we go from 1870 up to 1914 and we take 1891 as a cutoff date for the census, again, by that point, we've got more people living in... The census tells us we've got much more people living in towns. We're up to about 75%. We're a very urbanised nation, very early in Britain. Um, and again, the um, autobiographers reflect that quite nicely. Again, we've got about um, slightly, slightly lower in the um, autobiographies than we have um, in the census. But... Demographically, it looks about right. We have a, a kind of a good match. We've got some really smaller, tiny villages, hamlets, villages, 
small towns, medium towns, huge towns, London. We've got the kind of the spread, and it, it looks about right. And then the other thing we can do is think about family structure. I mean, again, we're very limited because we don't necessarily know what families look like, but what the census seems to be telling us, we've got records like the census and um, uh, the birth registers, the death registers, all being collected since the early part of the 19th century, um, parish registers as well. This seems to suggest that about 20 to 30% of children will have lost a parent by the time they reach adulthood. And again, our autobiographies match that really nicely. We've got about 24% of the men have lost a parent, 27% of the women have lost a parent. Um, so it fits quite nicely within that range, and it, it looks about right. That's not to say, obviously, that um, the autobiographies are just like a, a pure, really simple source that don't pose all sorts of problems of their own. They do, but I think we can say that kind of on the surface, they look about right. They don't look like they're massively kind of distorting or unrepresentative in some kind of way. One of the um, other problems, or kind of one of the problems of the autobiographies is that we have much more that are written by men, particularly for the earlier period. So one of the real struggles I think we always have as historians is really getting sources and evidence that is written and created by women rather than men. Now, very interestingly, by the time we move on to the, um, kind of the late 19th century, the Edwardian pe period, these people are writing their autobiographies in the 1960s, even the 1970s, occasionally the 1980s, they're writing their autobiographies you know, really quite recently to now. And by this point, we've got a lot of women who are writing. They've got literacy skills, you know, they've, they've got the ability to write. And so the later period, we've got quite a lot of, uh, we've got almost an even split, male and female. But for the early Victorian period, most of our sources are written by men. And even for the later period, although we've got more sources that are written by women, they're, they're, they tend to be different sources. They tend to be much shorter. So women write much shorter stories about their life than the men do. So very classically, the men's stories will go on and on and on and on, page and page and page. And the women's autobiography might be like five pages or ten pages. And they're very brief. They don't say very much about it at all. Um, there's a very big collection of working-class autobiographies at the library at Brunel University. And they just totted up the word count of these, um, the men's and the women's. And the average word count for the men, so all unpublished, the average word count was about 40,000 words. And there was, amongst the women, there was almost the same number of autobiographies amongst the women, but there was only one that touched, one went to the same length of, of 40,000 words than all the other. The average was much lower, more like 17,000 words, and most of them were much shorter indeed. And, and so you've got the same number, but the men's kind of stack up like this, but the women's stack up like that. There's much kind of less content to them. And women's sources tended not to have been published, which does mean they're much more difficult to find because they're not sitting in university libraries or they're not easy to find um, in the same way as the, as the male sources are. So there are all sorts of struggles in trying to get this material, but I think it's doable and I think, you know, that, you know certainly for the later period, we have got quite a lot of it. Of course, one of the other things we could, you know, all to kind of con contemplate with the autobiographies is that they do tend to be written, or kind of the, the um, accusation levelled against them is that they're written by people who are successful, that they've got a story to tell. And, and I think this is very true for the earlier autobiographies, for kind of the early Victorian period, the ones that were written in the 19th century or in the early 20th century. These stories tended to be written by men who had achieved something. So they might have had a very humble beginning, but then they become a Methodist preacher, or they become a successful businessman, or they become a union organiser, or they become a chartist, or they become an early Labour MP. You know, these kind of success stories are the ones that tend to get printed and that they're very well known and they're very easy to find. 
But I think what's wonderful about working on the kind of the late Victorian and the Edwardian period is by this point, we've had the growth of social history, of women's history, oral history, uh, history from below, lots of new kind of ideas about history. Growing up at the same time as universities like Bath were built in the 1960s and 1970s, this idea of getting everybody's story, that, that the history of ordinary people is just as interesting and just as important as the stories of the, the stories of important people who did something. So we actually get um, a, a wonderful range of, of stories of writ written by kind of ordinary, humble people who, who didn't achieve anything of note, who are still living in a you know, relatively humble working class um, life when they're writing their story, as opposed to the, kind of the achievement stories that dominate for the earlier period. So that is what I am um, looking at. Those are the sources that I'm looking at. And I'm looking at the Victorian period. And my question really is, what's going on with living standards during this period? So there's been a lot of debate as to what happens to living standards during the Industrial Revolution. Historians are very doubtful as to whether people benefited during the Industrial Revolution. But when we turn to the Victorian period, we have a much simpler story. Pe historians had a much simpler story about the, econ the economy is growing all through the Victorian period. We have... Um, GDP is doubling over kind of 30, 40 year periods. And the thing that really um, interests historians at this period is real wages are going up. So real wages, we know that real wages are going up quite significantly over the course of the 19th century. Britain is the workshop of the world. By the end of the 19th century, it's got this massive empire. And historians don't really dispute that the Victorian economy is rich in relative terms, that it's growing, and they don't really doubt that working people, ordinary people, are sharing in these gains. And the reason they don't doubt it is because that's what the real wages seem to be showing us. If we look at the real wage data, it shows that uh, working people are taking more wealth home. Therefore, yeah, OK, that's the end of the story. Um, living standards are going up. And that's where my problem is. And that's the problem, I think, that becomes very apparent when we engage with these sources, is that if we look inside the sources, it becomes very clear, as people describe their childhoods, but actually, they haven't got very much of this wealth that has supposedly been created and which has supposedly been filtered through to everybody's hands. So my first um, example, I've got this um, uh, autobiography. It's a life story. It's not really a written autobiography. It's a life story written um, about Thomas Luby. Um, and in the 1960s, um, a reporter from Granada TV was just doing a little piece on kind of life in the olden days. And he goes and interviews this guy from um, Salford Hume, actually just outside Manchester, um, who was born in 1883. He's been interviewed in the 1960s, an old man by this point. And I think the interviewer thinks he's going to have like a really nice chat about life in the olden days. And it's really not the story that Thomas tells us at all. It's a much bleaker story that he tells us. So his father is absent during his childhood. He just describes his father as an absolute drunkard. And he says his mother, by the age of nine is the age that he mentions, before the age of nine, she's not really looking after him properly and there's not enough food. And that's the, really the abiding thing that Thomas is saying about his childhood. There's not enough food. Food was scarce. He said he'd go round, um, his mother would give him a round of bread in the morning, but if he returned later in the day, rather than getting any more food, he simply got into trouble. No food, of course. And so the mother's not really looking after him. And the father's absent. Um, he's nine, he's managed to find himself a job, just about legal at this time, he's out of school, and at some point, uh, he's basically getting his own meals through the money that he's earning, um, and he just kind of buys them from soup shops and things. Um, 
at some point he befriends this sweet maker and he, start, he moves out of home. He's about nine at this stage from what you can tell from the interview. He moves out of home and he's living with this sweet maker um, in this kind of weird kind of squat, it sounds a bit like. They're living there together. Um, and the um, interviewer from Granada, who's obviously like, doesn't understand where this story is going. This is obviously not the story that he thought he was going to get at all. says, didn't your mother notice that you weren't going home anymore? And he says, oh, no, not my mother. She'd got four of us, four she couldn't keep. So I had to start the best way I could. So she's just really, it's not entirely clear, but she's just really clearly not looking after him properly. Um, ultimately, his relationship with the sweet maker breaks down and he's back out on the streets again and he's just trying to shift. He goes back to home for a little bit, but he's not really welcome there. Um, and the, the, the guy from Granada is like, well, why did you put up with this? You know, what, what, what is this story? And he says, well, I hadn't been used to much all my life much like a dog or any animal. So, I mean, very clearly, Thomas Luby is not really enjoying this wealth that's being created by Victorian Britain, and he's not seeing much of these, these great real wages that are supposed to be improving. But I think what's really interesting about the autobiography is we don't need to go to somebody like Thomas Luby living in... Abs I mean, this is clearly a, a kind of a case of neglect. Maybe there's always the odd case of neglect. But I think you don't really need to look at cases of extreme neglect everywhere in the autobiographies, you see stories, we've just go back to this idea about food being scarce, you see children who don't have very much food in their homes, even if they're not being neglected in this kind of a way. And we can just literally look at all these autobiographies, I've got about 650 in all. Um, do they mention going hungry? And about um, a quarter of the children at the start of the Victorian period mentioned going hungry. By the late 19th century, the early Victorian period, roughly the same. It's just gone down to about 20%. It's hardly moved at all. The hunger is different because if you're hungry in the early 19th century, that is it. You're not going to get fed anywhere. If you're not getting food from your home, you're not going to get food anywhere else either. By the late 19th century in the Edwardian period, we've got things like soup kitchens, hot dinners being given out at schools. So if you're not getting food inside the home, at the end of the century, you may be able to get food somewhere outside the home that there's some kind of do-gooder is providing. Um, so it's not the same kind of hunger. But I think it's still very significant that if we actually look inside homes, we still have quite a lot of problem with children, a lot of problems with children not really having enough food inside their home. And I think that, that's very interesting. We can also look at um, Elizabeth Twist. So Elizabeth Twist, um, born a little bit later, just 35 miles away from where Thomas um, has his rather miserable childhood, and Elizabeth Twist, completely different kind of working class family, only two children, her dad is a school teacher. So this is working class respectability. She says she knows that the pattern of her childhood was a comfortable one compared with other babies in the neighbourhood. And that's absolutely true. We see this, she's got a comfortable, small family, mother at home, food on the table. It, it's all nice, it's so nice. And yet she goes on. I used to observe my mother beat up an egg in a glass of milk, and watched enviously as my father drank it. Nobody else was so indulged. Consequently, for my earliest years, I too got the impression that there was something very special about my father. Um, the egg, okay? The dad is eating an egg, and she never gets to eat an egg. I always feel it's a shame in this story that what he does with his egg is beat it up in a glass of milk and have it raw, because that just sounds disgusting to me. Um, but 
clearly this egg is, you know, the, the, the fact that he's getting an egg is something that's very kind of um, evocative in her memory. And again, the autobiographies, I mean, eggs are wonderful. Um, a lot of the autobiographies talk about eggs. And um, obviously, they don't talk about it systematically. You can't kind of measure this in any kind of way, but they do get mentioned quite a lot. And it's very clear that, like Elizabeth, most children never get to eat an egg. An egg is a really um, a luxury good. Um, the economy has doubled over this period. Real wages have increased right throughout the 19th century. An egg costs about one penny, which is not a lot in our period, really. It's not an awful lot. And yet, it's a luxury good quite outside the realm of even a respectable working class family. I think that's a really interesting thing to, to ask ourselves. Why, if the economy is getting so, uh, is doing so well, is an egg such a precious thing? And the autobiographies come back to eggs over and over again. I mean, if you're very lucky and you've got a nice daddy, he might give you the top off his egg sometimes. Um, if you're less lucky, you might get the top of the egg on your birthday. You know, it, it's that much of a rare thing. Or you might get an egg at Easter. And it's an amazing treat when you get to eat the egg and it's something that's, that's remembered by many of the children. And I think that's really the point, that we've got this story that economists are telling us about the economy. We've got this story about real wages going up. And yet we also have this reality that there's a lot of hunger going on and there's a lot of children inside families that aren't getting very much food. And I think that's the point, that ec economics is just much messier. And what's happening with the, the money is much messier than the stories that we like to tell ourselves about it. Economics looks like it's neutral, but actually money passes around society in a really human and personal kind of way, and it's all about the, the personal relationships. And when we start to unpack that, what looks like a neat, tidy story can look like something very different indeed. So the idea behind the Victorian family and the Victorian economy is that the money is paid to dad. Dad brings it home, gives it to the wife, and then the wife can spend it on food and nutrition and the rent. I mean, she's the housekeeper. She's, she's, the, she's, the, um, the, she's the money manager. But she needs to get that money in order to do all of the managing. And again, the autobiographies shed lots of light on this kind of story. So Billy Cotton, he says that his father, a very nice, respectable working-class family, again, small number of children, his father was dead straight about money. And he describes how he could see his father taking his leather purse on a Saturday, coming home from work with his wages. Most people are paid week weekly, and they, they bring home the wages on a Saturday. Lifting up the flap, putting the money down on the table. Here you are, Suki, he used to say. And my mother would take it and reach it high up to the mantelpiece and put it there. And then she would spend the money over the week on the rent, the insurance, and the food. Most of it's going on the food, obviously. It can work really well. But obviously, as we read lots and lots of autobiographies, we can see there's lots that can go wrong in this kind of model as well. So just going through these points one by one, mortality. I mean, lots of families don't have a father because the death rate is high. It's about 12% of writers have lost their father by the age of 16. That's slightly higher in towns where the lifestyles are more unhealthy and the death rate is higher and, and, and work is uh, more dangerous. Slightly lower in towns. But still, a lot of families simply don't have a male presence at all. They don't have a male breadwinner. Then there's the problem of unemployment. Now, mostly the economy is in boom. So, um, you know, it is a growing economy. Employment isn't a massive problem all throughout this period because it really is a growing economy. But there's certainly some periodic uh, unemployment that, that some families suffer. 
So Margaret Powell's father was a painter and decorator. She describes him as a sort of general odd job man, but she says, most people didn't want the bother of home improvements during the coldest months, so every winter he struggles to find work. So nobody gets paid in this period if it's raining. If you have outdoor work and it's raining, you don't get paid. So there's lots of kind of periodic unemployment uh, amongst builders and amongst some farm workers as well, sometimes as well. And then, of course, there's the problem of ill health. Some fathers are just unable to work for a whole range of reasons because of their health. I've got uh, one example of a man just has a kind of catastrophic breakdown, doesn't work for six years, he can't kind of leave the house. Um, Arthur Collinson's father was a coach builder. They had quite a nice life um, in the early years of his childhood, from what we can see. When he's five, um, he loses his point. Uh, he, he loses his sight, goes blind, basically. And he's, uh, Arthur describes how the family loses its position amongst the great mass of poor. So there was a kind of normal poor. Uh, and they join, he say, the underprivileged. So there's a great big drop in the family's living standards when dad loses his job. But all of these, um, and most adults, most men don't suffer from a long illness. It's not the most common thing to happen. And again, unemployment is not that much of a common thing to happen. What is actually much more common in families is just, it's really difficult to get that money out of the husband's hands. He gets paid on a Saturday, on Saturday lunchtime. It's in his hands. It's in this leather purse that Billy Cotton describes. And it just doesn't necessarily make its way to the family or quite a big uh, um, a surcharge, let's say, has been taken out, out of the purse before it ever reaches the family. Um, oh, I want, yes, yeah, so I'll go back to that one, actually. Muriel Box's father would declare, you can't draw blood out of a stone. Um, he says, he'll never tell, I mean, Muriel described in her autobiography how dad will just not say, he won't say how much he earns. It's a secret, basically, how much is in his pay packet. And then he'd say, you can't draw blood out of a stone. The result was daily bickerings over money, which erupted into savage blows and on very rare uh, rows and on very rare occasions, blows. So there's just this fight about getting the money from the father, getting it into the household. And it's a story that's told many, many, many times over amongst the autobiographers. Lily Broomhill's mother, um, uh, again, a case of drunkenness, actually, in this instance. The dad is drinking a lot of the money. Um, it would often run low, and, and, and Lily remembers how mum used to say to us children, I'm going in the other room, don't come in, I'm going to ask him if he'll let me have any money. And she'd come out to the children, they'd be like, oh, you know, how did it go? And she would shake her head, he never hit her, and they never quarrelled, but he never gave her any money. And so this story is one that many, many of the autobiographers tell. They don't know how much dad earns. Um, Dad won't hand the money over, or he does, but he spends the Saturday afternoon at the pub before he comes home, so there's much less money in the pay packet by the time he reaches his family than they were expecting. So not getting the money out of Dad is one of the problems. Another problem, especially in the high-wage areas, is that men can earn quite a lot of money quite quickly, but then they may not want to do that for the whole course of the week or week in, week out, so they're working very um, periodically. So there is the example, say Joseph Wright, for example, Joseph Wright, for example, says of his father, if he worked steadily for perhaps a fortnight, he would take a holiday and spend what he earned. He's a, got a really hard job in the quarries. And I mean, one is not unsympathetic to the fact these men don't necessarily want to do these really difficult, physically arduous, dangerous jobs. They don't want to do this every day for the entirety of their life. So they get quite high wages over a period of time 
uh, and then they just don't work regularly. They spend that money often on drink, and it's, often it's a kind of a mix of the problems that we're describing with, with the other families, is that they're not really handing the money over, and they're not working regularly. James O'Meara, he says, his dad could work at the docks. Um, for two days, he could earn about 10 shillings. That's really good money. Five shillings a day is very good money. He could earn 30 shillings over the week. And just to, give that, uh, to, to provide that with some context, I've got lots of young women um, training as dressmakers. They earn five shillings in a week for a 60-hour week. They can get five shillings for a week. Here we've got James O'Meara. He can earn um, five shillings in a day. And um, James O'Meara gives up her job. Uh, his mother gives up his job when she marries. Um, she's earning 10 shillings a week, and she's marrying a man who has the capacity to earn 30 shillings a week. So you can see the incentive to give up work and marry somebody who's earning. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. Why work for 10 shillings if you marry a man who earns 30 shillings? It doesn't work out like that because he just does two, two days' work, enough for the rent and enough to get the barest necessities of living. Jean Rennie, her father, although a good workman, was not a steady one. And Henry Coward's mother married a man who did not take to persistent regular work but liked a job or a post that he could do when and how he liked. And um, it's all, I mean, he would work for a while and then he'll stop working and he'll just stay at home and read novels. And I can't blame him. That sounds much more enjoyable than the kind of work that he had to do. Um, but obviously it plunges the family into poverty because women can't go out and earn these kinds of wages themselves. <coughs> Then there's also the problem of desertion. And there's often an overlap between these kinds of stories. Uh, a father doesn't work regularly, and he doesn't um, hand over the pay. And then in the end, he deserts the family altogether. So these, there's often kind of an overlap between these stories. So James Royce, for example, describes his dad. He's just a shadow sort of a father. He didn't count. He sees him. He, he thinks he was present once when he was tiny. He can't really remember. He comes back, and it's a clear memory that James has. He comes back for a few days when he's about 10 or 11, and um, they go around the country together trying to sell watercresses, and his dad notices he doesn't have a pair of boots, and he steals a pair of boots and gives them to him, and then he just kind of wanders off again. So he really has very little to do with him throughout his childhood. He's, he's not raising, and certainly... Whatever James Royce is earning, that's not going into the family coffers at all. Or Arthur Harding. The Arthur Harding case is really interesting. He writes this autobiography. He describes how his dad um, went blind and he couldn't provide for the family because he was blind. Um, and then he deposits this um, autobiography in about the 1960s. And this historian called Raphael Samuel finds it and finds this, thinks this is a fascinating story and finds Arthur Harding and spends a number of years interviewing him about his childhood. And a really different story emerges from the one that was told in the autobiography, the one that the Raphael Samuel got out of the interviews. And he says of his father, like most men of his age, he was uh, of his class, ignorant and brutal towards his wife. He used to knock my mother about. He was a bully. He was a selfish man. He lived only for himself. He was a loafer, too lazy to earn a living, just an encumbrance, really. And he also describes that although he did go blind, he'd stopped providing for his family a long time before he went um, blind, and he deserted the family as well. And all of this kind of comes out in the interview. And it wasn't stuff they put in the autobiography um, that he'd written himself earlier. And desertion is really significant because, I mean, if, 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 if a father dies, then you could remarry, and you may well have a male income coming into the household again. If a father deserts, you can't remarry. There's no divorce that's available at this time. There's no chance of getting divorced and remarrying. So that's it. And desertion always marks the end of the wage 
coming in to the household. So that's it, the money's gone, um, and these families are just kind of on their beam ends. And I've got one example of um, a, a, the, the dad just walks off. They think he's gone for a few days just to do a little bit of business, and he never comes back. And he just describes how they are le literally looking out for him because it's eight children that have been left behind, and it's an absolute calamity when the male wage um, vanishes from them. And we can also, actually, we can put together all of these um, different things. And when we put together all of the different ways in which households can um, lack a male wage, we start to see some really, um, really significant trends, and it, it makes a lot of sense as to why children are not eating eggs. So... Um, I think the really interesting thing is if we look at the towns, things, things are much better and more stable in, in rural areas, um, though there are problems with all of these things happen in rural areas, but particularly the desertion, the not sharing of the wages, these are much more urban problems than they are rural problems. So if we just look at the urban ones for a moment, well, the mortality rate is slightly higher, it's 14%. The desertion rate is 13%. So you're almost as likely in a town to lose your father because he just leaves as you are to lose your father because he dies in the urban areas. And if you add that to the illegitimate children, about 3% of children are illegitimate, and fathers are never involved in the raising of their illegitimate children. We've got 30% of all of the autobiographers have not got a male breadwinner present at some point during their childhood. So it's not a minor problem, and Thomas Luby is not the exception. It's really quite, I mean, it's worse in his family than it is in many others. But that fundamental problem of there not being any money coming into the home, that's not a footnote to uh, Victorian Britain. That's something that's really much more significant. <coughs> and we can add together all of those fathers who are present, but who aren't sharing their wage in the kind of way that Muriel Box is describing, and they're just, or, or they're not working regularly. And then we've got quite a lot more, you know, we've got a much more dramatic period. We've got another 16% of families that we can add to that. So we end up with 46% of all of the autobiographers describe there being some kind of problem around getting the wage into the family. And that contrasts with um, about 30% of families, of writers that say that dad was present and he was sharing the wage. Okay, so the Billy Cotton person that we, we started, dad is there, he's sharing the wage. 30% make it completely clear that's happening. 46% make it clear that's not happening. And then there are others that are just not very clear. It's the inevitable with the kind of records that we've got. You can't always put families into one category or the other. And it all matters because women can't go out to work and get that wage for themselves. So all of these families are just plunged into poverty that they can't get out of. And it takes us back to where I wanted to begin with the gender pay gap. The fact that women can't earn anything equal to a male wage causes an awful lot of problems when the male wage isn't there. And it also really kind of comes back to this idea of why children don't get to eat eggs, it, or even though real wages are going up. And it's because we've got to think about gender, and we've got to think about families. And it's only when you start to think about gender and families and things that don't normally fit within the economist framework that we can really make sense, we can see, make sense of some of these puzzles, that we can see the problem and that we can understand these problems as well. So I just want to end um, <coughs> with three kind of general conclusions. Firstly, I think it might seem that all of these stories about um, Victorian period and the breadwinner wage may all seem um, kind of just slightly tangentially relevant to what we want to talk about today. And I would say I don't think they are. 
The idea of the breadwinner wage certainly dates from the 19th century, and the reality of this kind of gender-divided workforce, of course, is much, much older. But actually, Beveridge's recommendations for the welfare state embodied all of these ideas about a male breadwinner who goes out and earns a wage for the whole family, and a woman who's married and stays at home and doesn't work outside the home. And there are still traces of these kinds of ideas all over our welfare states. We still believe that if people are living together in intimate relationships, then the person who's providing is sharing their wages and providing for the person who's not, who's not working. So that assumption is actually still there in all of our benefit system today. Not quite the same way. But if we look back at the 19th century and we think it doesn't work particularly there, we, we can see very clearly it doesn't work, we should start to question why we're using these assumptions that wages paid to one person will look after another person because of an intimate relationship between them. We might start to think and, and problematise this. The other thing I think um, I, I want to say is this idea about feminist econo economics. We still see all over our culture measures like GDP and uh, real wages. We still use them in a completely unthinking an unproblematic way. And we see all over the media, just even today, a uh, politician on the radio going on about how GDP and real wages are going up, as though these things mean something in and of themselves. Well, they are interesting measures, but there's much more that we need to kind of unpack with them. And there are, obviously, fe uh, feminist econ economists who are doing work on precisely how things affect women, but their voices never make it onto the BBC. They never make it to the national news, the, into the media. They might just squeeze into The Guardian. So really, we don't want to hear, as a culture, we don't want to hear about how, um, how these big figures, these, these, these measures that we're used to and that we're familiar with, like real wages, we don't want to get involved in the messy story underneath them. I think we really, start, we, we really need to, we really need to think about this. And finally, just coming back to the idea of the gender pay gaps. Obviously, the gender pay gap has um, been a very big news story. Um, over the course of this year. I mean, very interesting, it was a massive story earlier in the year, and it's amazing how, how little it's, you know, even six months later, how much of a not story it has become so very quickly. But in that debate, there's an awful lot of focus on what employers are going to do, and what employers have been doing, and how employers are at fault. And I think, I mean, obviously it goes without saying that um, the employers do have answers. So, you know, we can get some answers out of the employers, and there will be solutions that can be led by employers. But I think when we look at it historically, we can also see that actually what's going on in the workplace is just one small part of a much bigger puzzle. All modern Western societies, even ones that have much more, or what we believe to be much more enlightened and, and better policies on gender and childcare and all these kinds of things, they still struggle with gender pay gaps. They are still evident absolutely everywhere. And that's because all of our societies are grappling with our past and grappling with the fact that houses need work, and women have traditionally done that work within the house. Houses today need much less work, but anybody with children can testify that children, small children, need a lot of care, and the school week is much shorter than the working week. So in order to really make sense of what's going on and really kind of think about solutions for gender pay gaps, we really need to start thinking about what's going on inside people's homes as well as what's going, out, going on in, in the workplace. Thank you very much. Will you step in and take some questions? Yes, that's, yes. Okay, well, thank you very much in, indeed, Emma. That was a, a fantastic presentation. And um, ending there with how um, history and the techniques of historians using oral autobiographical ethnographic techniques can help us 
uh, understand contemporary public policy challenges, I think is a really important uh, place to conclude. So we've got about 15 minutes to ask uh, Emma any questions, debate and discuss what she's presented before we go into our next panel session. Um, if you could put your hand up, let me know what you'd like to ask. Um, we'll kick off uh, the, the questions. Who'd like to go first? Anybody want to? Yeah, colleague here, yeah. We've got some microphones that will come across, yeah. Thank you. Um, what was the impact of trade unionism on women and pay and work and all of this? Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm a member of the union. I really believe in trade unions. But actually, when we look at the 19th century, um, trade unions are usually, almost always, really hostile to women's work. Okay, so because the workplace is, um, because women are always paid so much less in the workplace, um, the idea of equal pay is, is almost not out there. I mean, there is a woman who starts talking about it in the 1880s, but I mean, it's way out there. I mean, it's like crazy talk. Um, uh, um, nobody really thinks that women would get paid. So men have got a very ambivalent, and unionists have got a very ambivalent attitude towards women, because if you've got women in the workplace, they're always undercutting the male wage. Their solution to this isn't that we should pay the women as what, the same. I mean, that is just completely outside people's uh, imagination. The solution is you've got to get the women out of the workplace and also that you've got to push the male wage up. So the argument they're always using is the reason the women are working is because the men aren't earning enough. Obviously, we can see that's not why women are working. It's because there's all sorts of other reasons. They can't get the wage out, uh, can't get the money out of the man. But that's the argument that they always use. So trade unions are actually quite hostile to women um, uh, they, they, they want women out of the workplace and they use low wages that women are earning as an argument to get higher wages for men. It's not actually something that's positive. It's only when women unionise themselves, and women do sometimes manage to unionise themselves, it's only when women unionise themselves that any progress is ever made. Okay, thanks very much. Let's, let's take some more questions. I, I, the light is bright, so if I don't see you when I first start. Um, can you keep going? No? Oh, yeah, Emma, down here. Um, sorry, Emma. Really interesting. I kept on. Um, uh, sorry, can everyone hear me? Can we get a mic down here? Sorry. We, uh, I can speak very loudly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> mic is coming. David is bringing a mic. And, yeah, and then we've got one up there as well. Um, yeah. Um, I found that really interesting, and uh, through quite a lot of your talk, I was thinking about uh, the growth of food banks and um, the number of children in school who are um, increasingly, you know, the stories in the media about uh, problems of hunger in schools. And yeah. I was wondering whether what your thoughts were about how different the circumstances of some families are, notwithstanding, you know, the, the welfare state, um, whether or not those circumstances are so different now than some of the ones that you're reading about um, from a uh, hundred years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, it's just absolutely appalling and abhorrent that we have the growth of food banks. And I think, um, I, and again, I mean, I think it's, it's our absolute um, refusal to link up what we're saying. So a lot of the debate is about real wages. And, and it's true, I mean, whether real wages are growing. Of course, this is an important part of the debate. But what is the interest in growing real wages if you've also got growing food bank use? And for some reason, that's not part of our discourse. It's not part of what they're talking about on the Today programme. It's just, you know, it's there. We know about it. But it's not there in our mainstream economics. I think it's very similar. Um, I think that the, the roots are very different. I mean, in my period, there is no, under, there's no, no belief that the state should be providing to make sure that children don't go hungry. So that is very different in our world, is that we think that the state is there precisely to 
to make sure these kinds of things doesn't happen. So in some ways, there's a difference. But I think in some ways, it, it, a lot of it, and the, uh, the food banks in particular, is about how we as a society define our problems, the things that we want to talk about. And we've just put that into the let's not talk about it. I mean, yeah, of course, it pops up in The Guardian and there's a news story here and there. But mostly, we still just want to talk about real wages and GDP. I think that's just really problematic because it just obviously misses so much. Okay, so I think we had a we had one here, yep. And then David, could you? Uh, hi, hi there. Hi. Um, sorry, I wasn't sure if you could hear me. Yeah. Uh, so you've covered a lot of source material um, in your talk, um, and you've you've clearly spent a lot of time looking at it. Were there any examples in there of sort of almost contradictory examples where you've got? women who are the head of the household and uh, going out there and being the wage earners and were there kind of any any themes within that yes absolutely so there's obviously there's masses of women who go out to work because if you're in part of that 46 percent who don't have a either don't have a man at all or don't have a man who's sharing then very often the women are going out to work so you do have cases of women going out to work um Women are always kind of perceived, they're very often perceived as the head of the household in various ways. Even whether or not they're going out, they often are perceived as the head of the household. I mean, theoretically, it's the father, but actually people kind of perceive it to be the mother. Um, so you have lots of women going out, but it's really difficult because there's so much work that needs to be done inside the house and because the wages that they earn um, are so low that when you've got women working outside the home, doing full-time work, it's often actually really pernicious, really kind of denigrate, you know, kind of really degrade the child's experience because you can't have a hot meal, you can't have a, you can't have a fire, you can't have a cup of tea um, if the mother's physically out of the house for like 60 hours a week. I have just got one example, though, out of 650, I've got one example of a woman who earns more than the husband. Okay, one example, and it's really interesting. The dad has got quite a skilled job, it's, she's, they're living in Dundee, he falls out with people in the factory, loses the job, blah, 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 it goes wrong. And in the end, the mother, who'd had a little bit of schooling, um, manages to get herself a job, she gets a bakery, and she runs it really, really well, and it's really successful. Then she has another baby, so the husband has to look after the, baby, after the bakery. It all goes to rack and ruin in about six months, because she's looking after this baby and she's quite ill afterwards. So that declines. Um, and then she manages to find herself another job as a kind of a nurse health visitor type thing, and she gets paid really good wages. Um, and the father's out of work by this point. So this is like just the complete reversal, because there's loads of women going out to work, but they never earn as much as the man could do. This is the one example where the woman um, is earning, is the sole earner, and is earning more than the man could earn, even <laughs> if he did go out and he's not actually going out. But he walks, he deserts. He walks off. So he's not putting up with this. So there's just one example of a woman who manages to chuck this all out. But the marriage breaks down. Um, so I, I, one way, I just think the way to think about it is there is no template in Victorian society. There are very few households that you've got dual earners, just two or three, where you've got both husband and wife going out to work and both earning fairly good wages. Just, just a handful where you've got dual earners. And in every other case, you have this massive hierarchy where the man is the breadwinner, the woman may well work, but she brings in very much less money. So yeah. that's overwhelmingly the picture. Okay, so we had a, yes, up here, yeah. Hello. Um, bringing this into sort of the current day, in a way, we've currently got about, what, 14% of our population that's um, having to make a choice between heating and eating. Yeah. Um, how do you think that this historical perspective is going to sort of drive the changes when we're moving to universal credit where it's one payment per household unless there's a history of you know, police reports of abuse. Yeah. Do you think that this single payment is going to be filtering off and this is going to sort of increase this 
sort of poverty premium, essentially? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I, I despair. I despair of our politics today, and I just despair of the way that we view the poor um, and the solutions that we have and the kind of the punitive ideas about them. Um, I, I don't think I can kind of take really simple... You know, I have my own political beliefs about the kind of things that you're talking about, but I don't think, um, to be honest, I don't think that the history particularly informs. I don't think I don't think I have my ideas about what's going on in our own world and the move to universal credit and one payment and, and how all of this works. I mean, I don't think um, actually our, I, th I think so much has changed. Okay, so I think what we really see when we we look at my period is it's all down to the family. Okay, everything is down to the family, and if it's not if you're not getting your food off your family, then good luck if you can get a hot dinner somewhere else, but it's nobody else's business, okay? So I think what I would say, well, I, mean, I think the overriding lesson that I draw that's relevant today is that families are not trustworthy, okay? Families are really not trustworthy. Intimate relationships is not a good way of, you, you, you can't think that intimate relationships, family relationships, sexual relationships, whatever, will be enough to make sure that everybody in a household is provided for. You need something else. So I think we made wonderful strides during the 20th century, and we agreed kind of as a society that we would have the state that would look after children and would look after people in instances where the family failed. Um, but for some reason, our politics today is about just stripping back as much of that as possible and having as little as the state uh, as possible that's there. And I would just reinforce that don't take the state away because... Families are not reliable providers of, of children, not at all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was over here. <laughs> I oh, was yeah. wondering. Oh, here they are. <laughs> um, whether in your sources any narratives of sex work and sexual labour appeared at all? Very little, because we are looking at the Victorian period, and it's quite prudy. Um, so very little, um, very little about sex. Nothing about homosexuality or same-sex relationships, even though we know that most people are sharing beds in the 20, in, in, into their 20s. Uh, very, very little at all. I do have one... Um, I, I have a couple. I have three, actually, um, whose mothers um, work as prostitutes. But they all talk about... I mean, one just says nothing, except he... I mean, it's more, more, more like an accusation than anything else. He says she's the village prostitute. Um, another, um, yes, her mother is a prostitute, and she says that she's put her to prostitution but the whole way it's written is very formulaic it's a kind of a conversion narrative then she finds god and it's all fine um yeah and there's another one um louis Stri uh, stride who's actually in bath um slightly later 1906 her mother is working as a prostitute and neglecting her really badly so it it, it does emerge but not in a systematic way and not in a way that we can say very much about right, I so. think one more up here yeah on one here, yeah. Okay, so two, two, two final questions in there. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> think you'd be a little harsh on um, first wave feminists because they were raising a lot of these issues really from the end of the 19th, uh, the uh, end of the 18th century onwards. And if you take the example of somebody like Eleanor Rathbone, who was one of the early graduates of, I think it was Oxford. I mean, the Family Endowment Society, which she um, founded, was really very important. And although maybe you could argue that her views weren't taken that much notice of, for example, her book, The Disinherited Family, influenced Beveridge, 
And although he stuck to his male breadwinner model, he did recognise the importance of family allowances. And he says in his autobiography that it was reading that book that made him take that seriously. And the other thing I think we should remember that the poverty of children was being exposed once they started to have to go to school. That's when you start to get the campaign for family, uh, not family allowances, um, school meals. And although they were pretty disparate, they got a big boost when the people recruiting for the army discovered that 40% of working class boys who wanted to um, were rejected because they were so malnourished and so small. And at the time of the Boer War, that was rather important. So you had people arguing that school meals wasn't socialism, it was imperialism. And that's, so you, there were other things going on which were, I think, revealing the, the, the downsides of this notion of the male breadwinner and keeping women in the home. And it was being challenged, not always for feminist or socialist reasons, but these things did come together and, and did create a momentum which was then carried through um, to, to, the, to the Second World War. So I think we, we, we need to remember that too, that it wasn't sort of so way out necessarily, it was entering into the debate, sometimes for reasons we wouldn't necessarily support. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think I said anything about first wave feminists um, not supporting or not identifying any of this. I didn't talk about them at all. But yeah, I mean, certainly there are, I mean, people are starting to think about these things and these ideas are out there. Um, a lot of this um, is happening in the very late 19th century and the um, early 20th century. But the, the trade union movement is all kind of starting in the 1820s, the 1830s, the 1840s. And at this point, none of these ideas are really on the agenda at all. So I think certainly for the earlier period, I think it's very true, these ideas are not on the agenda, and there is no feminism, but by the time we get first wave feminism, that's the very tail end of my period, then yes, of course, you do have voices that are talking about these kinds of things. And I think it, it is a, often it's a lack of joined up thinking, so they know full well these problems are there, because they know that they're providing the school dinners. Of course some people know these problems are there, of course they know they're there. The Boer War, as you say, the um, degeneration debate, of course they know they're there. Charles Booth and his surveys, of course they know. They discover 20% of the population are living in below the poverty line. They invent the poverty line at the very tail of our period. They do know, um, and as historians we know, but we still don't want to take all of this evidence that we know and say, maybe there's a problem with this picture of Victorian prosperity. And that's, the, that's simply the point I'm making, that historians don't want to take this evidence that we have that's scattered around in funny and weird places and say, maybe this is telling us something that subverts our picture because we like the idea that real wages go up and everybody gets richer and we're very reluctant to, 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 to kind of challenge that story. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay, and that, uh, a last question over here, I think. Charlie. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Um, I wanted to ask whether um, the perspective of children on family economics, do you think that could add anything to our contemporary debates as well as historical ones? I think that's really interesting. Um, Obviously, what I'm, I mean, these are childhood experiences, but they're written by adults, okay? So they're written by adults, oh, often old adults. They're quite elderly sometimes by the time they're writing them. Um, but the child's perspective is so powerful. Um, and it's really, I mean, I think the, it's hugely powerful. I think I've never really thought about it, but yes, I think, and it does come back to ideas about universal credit and food banks, that actually children's experiences and giving children a voice could be hugely powerful. I think um, 
everything that I'm talking about really is people, I mean, they are adults, but they're talking about what went on in their family. People have very vivid memories of what goes on in their family. Not all of it, but very vivid memories of bits of it that come out very, very brightly. Um, I think absolutely, I think the, the child perception, I think it's very relevant for today as well, because we wouldn't really imagine listening to children as though they could shed light on something like universal credit or food bank use or anything like that. But um, when you do hear children's voices, and I have heard children talking about actually, um, coming back to the idea about food banks, I have heard interviews of children describing feeling hungry and, and, how th and that feeling of hunger is a thing that comes up through the autobiographies an awful lot. That feeling of hunger, and particularly what she said was very striking, very resonant with the autobiographies, is that um, it feels different when like, you know there's no food in the house and it's the kind of hunger that you know there's no food in the house. There's not going to go away, this feeling. You've got to go to bed and there's nothing that you can do about it because there really is no food. And it might be kind of the same hunger as you feel at other times, but that hunger that, that when there's no food in the house and you know there's no food in the house actually just starts to feel really, really different and very oppressive. And it's a, a similar kind of theme that kind of comes out through the autobiography. I think, yes, I think children's perspectives are uh, amazingly important and they, 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 they tell us things that we can't necessarily get from other perspectives. They're they, they kind of raw, um, and it would be lovely to hear more of them, but obviously we don't, as a culture, have that much respect for children's voices, and we're not out there trying to, trying to listen to them in a big way. But I, I think it's a really good point. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed, Emma. I'm, I'm afraid we've now come to the end of the time we have for, the, for this yeah. session. It's, it's great to, to open the symposium with a historian. It's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, and the perspectives you've given us today, engrossing and really interesting. So thank you very much indeed, thank Emma. Thank you.